0: This podcast episode is made possible in part by a grant from Lilly. Welcome to the breastcancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, Breastcancer.org senior editor, Jamie DiPolo.
1: Hello, thanks for listening. I'm podcasting from the 2023 American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Rojas, a breast cancer surgeon at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Rojas is a national leader in treating sexual dysfunction in women receiving cancer treatment. At this conference, she chaired a session called A Juggling Act, Managing the Toxicity of Estrogen Deprivation for Patients with Breast Cancer. She joins us to discuss some of the symptoms people who identify as female may have, as well as treatment options for them. Dr. Verhojas, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. I'm thrilled
1: to be here. So this is great because I know there are many, many, many women, I I don't want to say all, but I'm thinking it's a lot, have sexual health issues after breast cancer treatment, and they're often hesitant to bring up these problems with their medical team. You said that during your presentation. So can you tell us why that is? Why do you think that is?
2: I think it's a couple of different reasons. Number one, as a society, we haven't been doing a great job addressing menopause in general. And a lot of these symptoms fall under the umbrella term of menopause symptoms. And so as a society, we're not well-equipped to not only talk about these topics, but address them. I think the second aspect of this is limitations in the clinic, I think that oncologists do want to address these issues deep down inside, but they don't always have time and they don't always feel comfortable talking about these things. So through raising awareness about these issues, I'm hoping to not only give patients the language to ask about these concerns, but also give providers the tools to address them in easy
1: ways that are manageable in a busy oncology clinic. Okay. And do you think part of it could be too, I'm just wondering you know, maybe as a patient, they don't think the oncologist is the person that could treat it or address it. You know, I have a unique
2: role at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. I'm actually the director of the sexual health after cancer program called MUSIC. It stands for menopause, your genital sexual health and intimacy clinic. And I think it's important for whoever is giving this advice to maybe have some flavor of either oncology background or interest in treating women with a history of cancer. I think that there are gynecologists who specialize in these concerns, but I think as part of a multidisciplinary team of care for these symptoms, it's good to have someone who's oncology-minded on the team. So I think actually that oncologists are the perfect people to discuss this. I think it's a multidisciplinary collaboration just like a lot of other aspects of cancer care and that oftentimes it's good to coordinate with the gynecologist because these patients that are experiencing these symptoms really should be getting a regular exam because I spoke about that in my presentation at ASCO about how oftentimes we pick up exam disruptions. So if we don't treat these symptoms, and they go untreated for a long time, then actually patients' pelvic exams can become abnormal. And that may be the cause of a lot of their symptoms. So I think it's collaboration between the oncologist or an oncology-minded individual so that the interventions that are recommended are both effective and
1: safe. Okay, that makes sense. And could you talk about some of the most common, maybe the three that are most common, or I'll leave it to your choice, or maybe the most distressing, Um, and then what are some of the treatment options?
2: Well, one of the interesting aspects that we have described in our research at the music program at Sylvester in Miami is that patients don't just talk about, or they're not just concerned about vaginal dryness. About a third of patients report low desire as their most distressing symptom. So, So I'll talk about, let's say, first hot flashes, dryness and painful sex and then desire. Okay. So number one, hot flashes. These are caused by an imbalance or dysregulation in the brain where your body isn't interpreting your core temperature correctly. So treating them really involves something that works in the brain. So there's behavioral modifications that we advise, but there's also several medications that are evidence-backed that are really helpful for hot flashes. These include venlafaxine, oxybutynin, which are the two that we use in the music sexual health after cancer program. And more recently, there's an FDA approved medication that is a neurokinin three inhibitor. And the name escapes me right now well, it's because fine. it's a, it begins with an F. Uh-huh. Um, but that's also very exciting. Those are very disruptive to the lives of more than 80 percent of women with cancer. They wake you up at night. They mess up your day. It makes it hard to work. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. They can often present as panic attacks, too. And so it's not just anxiety, like you may actually be having hot flashes. The second thing is painful sex and dryness. So in my talk, I spoke about different options for moisturizers, which are actually different from lubricants. I have patients start with a non-hormonal moisturizer first, and I like for them to start with a hyaluronic acid-based moisturizer at least three times a day. I prefer for patients to use silicone based lubricants if they're not depending on condoms for contraception or STD protection. And then the other thing we talk about in music a lot is managing the persistent symptoms after we've fixed the dryness and that's issues with the pelvic floor. So we do a lot of dilator training in the music program and the music program also has an Instagram where we've posted videos on how to use the dilators, so that they're not so intimidating. And then oftentimes we refer to a pelvic floor or pelvic health physical therapist because they can be really helpful with those painful sex symptoms that are not just related to dryness. And then lastly, desire, like the hardest nut to right, crack really right. for these patients, but really, really common and very underaddressed. probably the most underaddressed issue. And as a provider, when I started this program, it was probably the most intimidating topic for me to address because I didn't really know if I had the solutions for patients because it's so complicated. Um, It involves issues with relationships, um, past trauma, um, and other issues like that, and then plus the biological aspect. So I think that by treating the pain with sex, oftentimes desire does start to return, but many women need more than just that. So we like to plug them in with either psycho-oncologists or uh, relationship counselors, Um, the aasect.org website can help patients find sexual therapists that address a lot of those issues. And then for my talk, I also touched on the two FDA-approved medications for low desire. FDA-approved for premenopausal patients. Studies are ongoing for women with cancer. However, in music, we do often use flabanserin, which is a -a once-a-day pill for patients who are on endocrine suppression. With tamoxifen, it's a little tricky because of um, it can increase the side effects of this medication, so we have to have a long discussion about that. But we oftentimes do also use these FDA-approved medications that are either a once-a-day pill or an injection given prior to sexual activity. And I'd say probably more than half of the patients respond, but because desire is so complicated, it really does take like a multifaceted approach.
1: Yeah, that would make sense because you figure if somebody's had a mastectomy, they there may be some body issues which play into the desire and everything like that.
2: Yes, definitely. And body image is also tough. And that's also where I think that organizations like BreastCancer.org that put out this information but also put patients with other patients so they can talk about how they approach
1: these things um, is really important. So I know during this session, you also discussed some products and therapies and devices that people should avoid. And I feel like that's just as important as what people should do. So could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for asking me about that. I think because we haven't addressed these symptoms for so long, it's fostered an environment where not only unsafe products, but unsafe devices have been recommended to patients. And so one of the elements of my talk is discussing what's known as vaginal lasers. These are usually energy based devices placed in the vagina, usually CO2 lasers. They have gentle sounding names, and there's several different companies. They're often specifically marketed to breast cancer patients, especially around October. And many patients get referred for these treatments because they think they have no other option. And that's what I like to talk about is all the options that patients do have. I think we're underutilizing them, and those options are definitely more safe. It's important to know that these devices were never FDA approved to be used in the vagina. Um, they were part of a program within the FDA called the 501K program, which is basically a fast tracking program for companies to register their devices. The FDA actually doesn't need to look into whether they are effective or safe. Mm -hmm. And so there have been two placebo or sham controlled trials that have come out in the last two years, showing that when women who receive these treatments are compared to women who receive a sham treatment, meaning like the device is placed, but maybe it's not turned on, There's no difference in their symptoms, even when they did biopsies. And so these devices have not been shown to be effective in randomized controlled trials. And in the music program, we've actually taken care of patients who have chronic pain, burns and scarring and are being physically harmed by these devices. And so it's very concerning and it's kind of my warpath right now. So I'm so glad you brought it up, thank you.
1: Well, I wanna ask you too, before we go on to anything else that people should avoid, I've seen kind of two separate marketing strategies. One is called vaginal rejuvenation, and then the other one that you just spoke about was sort of the uh, re-igni- reignition of desire. So, and I think people sometimes confuse the two or they think they're getting both at once. So what, what actually is the vaginal rejuvenation?
2: Yeah, you're right to point that out because the marketing is confusing and it's made more confusing by a 2018 advisory released by the FDA that asked these companies to roll back their deceptive marketing. So now when you go to the websites of these devices, there's actually a version of the website for Americans and then there's a version of the website from outside of the United States. And so they're marketing them outside of the United States for all kinds of things, not only to make the vagina appear and feel more youthful, which is under this umbrella term of rejuvenation, but also to increase pleasure or maybe treat other medical conditions such as urinary incontinence, uh, lichen sclerosis or other issues like that, where these devices really should definitely not be used. Vaginal rejuvenation in general, it's tough to talk about because it's so pervasive in our culture now these devices do fall under that category, but there are also surgeons offering different procedures called labiaplasty, which is where they uh, change the shape of the external vagina, which is called the vulva, which includes the labia majora and the labia minora. I think that it's very, it's tough for me to talk about this because I've taken care of women who had these procedures done by people who are not trained in anatomy. And that's a real problem here in the United States is that non-gynecologists are operating on the vulva. And so that's a whole nother podcast in itself. Sure. But, um, and it has a lot of cultural issues and I definitely have a lot of opinions about it. But um, I try to steer patients away from surgical cures for their symptoms because oftentimes we can treat them without surgery.
1: Okay. And are there other, um, excuse me, devices or sort of drugs things that people should avoid yes yeah, so thank you so much for
2: asking about other drugs that patients should avoid i think that another big topic that could also be its own <laughs> podcast is the topic of bioidentical hormones ah, right. yes there are fda approved versions of vaginal estrogen that is estradiol and that is a bioidentical substance bioidentical is a marketing term Um, So the estrogen in our body is also estradiol. It doesn't matter if it was created in a lab or created from soybeans. It still has to undergo like a chemical process. So calling something bioidentical doesn't make it more safe or more natural. Under this term bioidentical, there are companies that are kind of compounding, making these different uh, combinations of different types of hormones, and they may start by taking a patient's blood or um, salivary test and telling them that they are like off on certain hormones. They're either like estrogen, that their estrogen is too high or their progesterone is too low or their testosterone is too low. And so sometimes I'll see patients that are on these concoctions that are not um, FDA approved. They're not monitored for efficacy or safety. And so what sometimes happens is they have really large doses of hormone in them and specifically testosterone. This also includes something called pelleted therapy where patients will have a pellet of testosterone placed somewhere in their body in their skin and it lasts 3 months. When you actually measure the testosterone levels in those patients, they're really really high. Patients feel amazing, they're having lots of sex, they're working out because testosterone is an anabolic steroid, but we know that in your body, testosterone is converted to estrogen. And so women with a history of estrogen-sensitive cancer really should not be using these bioidentical hormones because terms marketed as bioidentical um, and not FDA-approved because, number one, we don't know how everybody is going to react to these levels of hormones. We don't know what it means for your risk of recurrence. And while there are people who are marketing them as a safe alternative, I really don't recommend buy hormones. And I try to get patients on FDA approved versions. Now I'm not against vaginal hormones for breast cancer patients. I'm actually very for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have two FDA approved aspects of that. There's vaginal estradiol that we use a lot in the music program. And then there's vaginal DHEA or presterone, which is kind of a cousin of testosterone. And we utilize these therapies a lot. They're FDA approved. I know how the body's going to react to them. I know we have studies showing that estrogen and testosterone don't go up really high when patients receive them. And those are really the safer option for patients, especially with a history of any type of cancer.
1: Okay, yeah, because the my understanding, and correct me obviously if I'm wrong, is that when it's used vaginally, it kind of stays in that area and helps that area and it doesn't go throughout the body.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. When we're using hormones locally, so first of all, the studies showing that there might be some absorption into the bloodstream from vaginal estrogen are a little bit older and they use doses that are a lot higher than products we have today, maybe like five times higher. And so we have really, really low doses of vaginal estrogen and also we can dose them in a way like maybe once or twice a week where there's really not likely to be any kind of significant absorption. And so that's how we manage that in the music program. It is controversial and usually by the time patients get to me, they're very estrogen averse because they've been conditioned to avoid all those products, which is good, but we can utilize these in safe ways. And while there might be a tiny bit of absorption in the beginning, if you use a larger dose, we can usually employ tactics to minimize that absorption, and which I think helps patients feel better. And we also um, speak to their providers, their oncologists, and make sure they're on board and that they understand we're doing this in a really um, supervised, careful, thoughtful way.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for all this. So to wrap up, I know you have the music program at your institution, which sounds amazing. But that's there. And I know you're working at getting some programs, similar programs started other places. But how would you advise women who maybe don't have access to a program like that? How should they go about starting a conversation with a doctor or finding a doctor to help them if they're having some sexual problems? Yeah,
2: that's a great point. But also, it has a solution because of the way that our society is now with social media. So I thought of this, too, when we started the music program, because I'm both a breast cancer surgeon and a gynecologist, there aren't a lot of hybrids like me in the world. There's a few of us and we're all very sexual health minded. But for the music program, we actually have a music Instagram, which is music underscore sex after cancer. And I post a lot about new treatments and um, these specific issues that women with cancer are experiencing and how to address them so that people anywhere can access this information. And it's actually been really interesting because I have people reach out to me from Thailand, um, the Philippines, South America, you know, saying that they haven't been able to find someone who is who can address these issues. And so we really try to make that information accessible. There's also a lot of other programs that are happening. You've spoken to one of my colleagues and very good friends, Dr. Sarah Tevis from uh, University of Colorado. She's making her videos. Um, With her group that are trying to increase information accessibility for all types of patients. And then, with regards to patients bringing it up with their providers, I want to empower every patient to start the conversation. You have nothing to lose. You've gone through cancer treatment. You are entitled to say almost whatever you want in the oncologist's office. Um, So bring it up, say, hey, doctor so-and-so, I'm having some issues, some side effects from this treatment. One of them is painful sex. I'm having some vaginal dryness. I'm having low desire, low libido. Do you have any resources for me or advice? Can you refer me to anyone? Even if they don't have a solution for you right then or your oncologist all of a sudden looks very flustered yeah. and uncomfortable, which totally happens. We're human. If five people asked that oncologist that day about their sexual health concerns they're gonna go home, they're gonna find the resources, they're gonna put something together for patients, whether it's hiring an expert or referring you to an expert on the outside or putting together some information. So the more you bring it up, the more we're gonna talk about it and the more it's gonna be addressed, the better job societies are gonna do um, teaching other providers like ASCO by putting together a session this year. And so I just want everyone to feel empowered to start the conversation with their providers.
1: Dr. Rojas, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. And thank you, breastcancer.org for bringing more awareness to these issues. And everyone check out our talk on ASCO, which should be available on the ASCO website.
0: Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.